Vietnam gets a new president, Tesla opens an office in Malaysia, and Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong's brother considers running for office. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is March 9th, 2023. On today's show... So there's a lot of appetite for green investment, but I feel that this can also be a cause or a factor for inequality or unequal access to market, um, especially if you think about the MSMEs. The MSMEs would not necessarily have those resources, um, hence will not be able to tap into the supply chain. So in a way, it's good that there's certification for green investments and for businesses to be aligned with the SDGs, for example. But I do feel that um, the MSMEs would lose out because they're not capable of tapping into those resources. That was Dr. Juita Mohammed on the challenges that micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises, which make up 98% of businesses in Southeast Asia, face in attracting green investments. For more on that and an update on the region's macroeconomic outlook for 2023, stay tuned. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Dylan Keen in the studio. Dylan is a former researcher with the Southeast Asia program at CSIS and has followed the region closely from various organizations in D.C., where we've crossed paths many times. We're so happy to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Karen. I'm happy to be here. So, Dylan, not to expose your age, but you worked here in 2014, right? Let's get philosophical. What do you think has been the biggest change to the region in the last 10 years? Well, first of all, Karen, if you're going to make it about age, uh, I could mention that Greg Poling was also here in 2014. Uh, I could, but I I won't mention that. Touche, touche. As for the biggest change, um, just thinking back when I started at CSAS in April 2014, Thai Prime Minister Yingluck Shinawat was three weeks away from being deposed in a military coup uh, led by General Priyot Chan-o-cha. Uh, the NLD party was more than a year away from their electoral landslide that swept Aung San Suu Kyi into power in Myanmar. Anwar Ibrahim was facing a five-year prison sentence in Malaysia, and Joko Widodo was an upstart governor of Jakarta who looked poised to become president of Indonesia. So with that, I will say a lot has changed politically. And that's it, listeners. All you need to know about Southeast Asian politics in 10 seconds. I can only hope that in the next 10 years, our program will still be thriving under Greg's wise leadership. And hey, maybe Indonesia's new capital will finally get built and Nusantara can host the Olympics in 2036. Who knows? With that, let's get right into the headlines. Last Thursday, Vietnam's National Assembly named 52-year-old Vo Van Thuong as the country's new president in the latest and hopefully last round of political reshuffling. The ruling Communist Party nominated Thuong as the sole candidate, and he was elected almost unanimously. Dylan, can you tell us a bit more about the timing and significance of this appointment? Sure. There are a few key points here. Tung was one of several leaders who were promoted amid an anti-graph crackdown and replaces Nguyen Xuân Phuc, who resigned in January following his involvement in COVID test kit and flight repatriation scandals. Although the presidency is a largely ceremonial role, it is still considered one of the four pillars of Vietnam's leadership. Tung is also widely regarded as being in the inner circle of party general secretary Nguyen Phu Trong, who has been the driving force behind this anti-corruption drive. Two more fun facts. Tung is the youngest member of Vietnam's 16-member Politburo and hails from the southern province of Vinh Long. The top four pillar positions have historically been dominated by northern politicians, so it's also possible that the Vietnamese Communist Party wanted to have more balanced regional representation in deciding this promotion. 
For multinational companies, Tuang's appointment puts an end to the last few months of political uncertainty surrounding Vietnam's leadership and can hopefully speed up the investment's approval process for infrastructure projects. I'm sure everyone is glad to be done with that drama. Moving elsewhere in the region, electric vehicles are back in the news. Tesla has announced that it will open a head office in Malaysia, establish a network of charging stations for its cars, and set up showrooms and service centers across the country. But Malaysia's trade ministry has not provided any further information on when the office will open. Karen, what are the implications of Tesla's decision for the region? Well, there's definitely been a pattern of Southeast Asian countries seeking to manufacture more for export, as well as increase battery production and encourage foreign investment. Indonesia, for example, has been wooing Tesla for years to build battery and EV production facilities in the country, and recently unveiled a subsidy program to boost domestic EV adoption and win investment deals from not only Tesla, but other Asian producers like China's BYD. Under the program, only vehicles manufactured in the country using at least 40% local content will be eligible for subsidies. Meanwhile, South Korea's LG and Hyundai have already started construction on a battery cell plant east of Jakarta. Experts predict that Tesla will likely focus on market testing and charging network development for the next two years before deciding on a regional manufacturing hub of choice. And the competition is hot, with Thailand also vying for a spot in the race. Incentivized by Thailand's EV subsidy program last year, which offers EV tax incentives and reductions on excise, import, and road taxes, Tesla is planning to build 13 EV charging stations nationwide after opening its first supercharger station in central Bangkok in February. Going back to Malaysia, though, Amazon Web Services also announced on March 2nd that it will launch a new infrastructure region in Malaysia with an investment of $6 billion U.S. dollars. Prime Minister Anwar lauded the move as a vote of support for Malaysia's leadership in the global digital economy. Given that discussions for the deal began in December of 2019, Anwar also said that the final decision showed investor confidence in the stability of the current unity government. I just hope that stability continues, considering all the ongoing graft investigations into UMNO and Bursatu politicians. Shifting back to presidential posts in Southeast Asia, though, Dylan, what's going on with the Lee family in Singapore? Well, amid an ongoing police investigation against Lee Shen Yang and his wife over the handling of his father Lee Kuan Yew's last will, the estranged younger brother of Prime Minister Lee Shen Long revealed that he's considering a run for president in 2023. Compared to the prime minister who leads the government, the presidency holds limited powers, ranging from the right to sign off on civil service appointments and veto spending bills. What qualification and legal roadblocks will the younger Lee face, though, Karen? So lawyers highlight that he's unlikely to meet the criteria to run. Regardless of the ongoing police investigation outcomes, court findings from 2020 reveal that he and his wife lied under oath during disciplinary proceedings related to his father's will, which could prevent him from qualifying. Exactly. Although Li Xianyang could easily satisfy the criteria for private sector candidates given his extensive business experience as Singtel's CEO, a presidential elections committee, which is stacked mostly with officials affiliated with the ruling People's Action Party, gets the final say in determining whether a candidate is eligible. Critics have argued that the committee has too much discretionary power and is biased towards the PAP, which has been the only party to rule Singapore since 1965. So it's possible that the commission could argue that because he lied under oath, he does not qualify as a, quote, person of integrity, good character, and cooperation, which is part of the criteria for eligibility. It would also be difficult for him to campaign since he and his wife have been living in Europe for the past few months in self-imposed exile. And he has said that he may not return to Singapore amid the ongoing probe. The outcome of the presidential elections will be a barometer for national sentiments ahead of general elections that must be called by November 2025. 
The PAP suffered its worst ever showing during the last general elections in 2020 and has been working to win over younger voters. This is also not the first time that Lee Shenyang has considered a run. He joined the opposition Progress Singapore Party in 2020, but backed down from a run the same year, saying that Singapore doesn't need another Lee. Well, as a fellow Lee, I think I disagree with that, but we'll just have to wait and see. And those are the headlines. Thanks for stopping by, Dylan. Great to be here, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Juita Muhammad, coming to you all the way from Kuala Lumpur. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio, everybody. I'm Greg Poland with CSIS, joined by my co-host, Alina Noor, now of the Carnegie Endowment. Hi, Alina. Hi, Greg. And Alina and I are recording the first of two Roadshow episodes because we both happen to be in Kuala Lumpur this week uh, for a conference. Uh, our first guest today is uh, Dr. Juita Mohammed, who's director of the Economic and Business Unit at IDEAS, or the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs here in KL. Hi, Juita. Hi, Greg. Hey, Juita. Welcome. So we gave you the squishiest of topics uh, to talk about today, which is just economics and how the economic picture looks in the region uh, in 2023 as we're I guess now fully post-pandemic. I don't know what we count as officially being the post-pandemic recovery period, but last year saw pretty robust um, bounce back in most regional economies. Southeast Asia today, for the most part, is really driving economic growth in the region. Before we came in here, I went ahead and jotted down the latest IMF numbers, at least what I think are the latest IMF numbers. And you know, last year, China's growth was only... 3.2%. This year, it will hit somewhere around 4.5%. Compared to the region, we had Vietnam last year leading uh, the region at 7% growth, Philippines at 65 Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, all over 5%. Some of that's going to moderate this year, I think, but still going to be pretty robust. Vietnam will stay about 6 Indonesia and Philippines around 5 Malaysia around 45 So, guess what? They're all numbers. Things look pretty good for Southeast Asia. But I think you can tell me that things aren't all uh, sunshine and rainbows. So what do you actually make of the economic picture in the region as we enter this year? I think macroeconomically speaking, if we could do compare ASEAN to the U.S. and the EU, um, I think our growth rate is more resilient. We're more resilient um, to absorb the shocks um, that will come from the EU and also the US in the next few months to come. But then it goes back to how long the global slowdown will be. Because then it also goes back to how we can absorb it in the medium to long term as well. In terms of inflationary pressure, we do see that in ASEAN, the rate is um, relatively low compared to the EU and also the US. Um, But then this goes back to the monetary policies that were also introduced in the last couple of months. We do see that countries like Malaysia, like Indonesia, but not Japan, increasing um, their OPR rates or their interest rates to mirror that of the US to combat higher inflationary pressures. So we do see that even though we are quite resilient to protect our exchange rates, at least, we still needed to follow what the major economies are doing 
But I do see that the rise of the interest rates in the next few months to come will um, be more focused on different countries. Uh, for example, for Malaysia, this quarter alone, we have not um, increased our interest rates. Um, but this is not to say in the next coming months, um, this will not be the case. Of course, um, with higher interest rates, we're trying to protect our exchange rate. But on the downside, you see that the cost of uh, taking up loans will be higher. And this will again impact um, the households and also the vulnerable groups on the ground. Um, so this is where macroeconomic indicators uh, do not actually show at the global level. But this is something that um, Malaysia and other ASEAN countries are going through in terms of the society trying to safeguard itself uh, vis-a-vis um, the inflationary pressures at the global level. So for those economically challenged like me, you mentioned that Southeast Asian economies have been resilient despite the pandemic. What accounts for that resilience? Is it mainly driven by domestic consumption and demand? And how does intra-ASEAN trade play into that resilience at all? Mm. That's a good question. So when we talk about resilience, we look at the economic activity. We look at trade, for example. So in ASEAN, even though we don't trade as much within ASEAN countries, we do trade with the rest of the world more. So trade is one aspect of the resilience. And the other one is when you look at the inflation rates, it's, again, very low uh, if compared to the other countries, the major countries in the world. So I think because of those factors, among other policies that are also being implemented on the ground by different ASEAN countries, the growth rate within the region is much higher than that if we compared it to the rest of the world. For example, this region will grow between 4 to 5% in the next year to come. But I would also like to highlight that looking at the last quarter, for Malaysia at least, the GDP growth has um, it's still positive, but you can see that the growth is at a slower rate. So when you say, oh, the global slowdown is going to happen in 2023, it has actually started late last year. So again, we're bracing for the blow, but then again, going back to the IMF, they have somehow recalibrated, and it seems that the economists are saying that it's not as bad as we think it will be, but again, it goes back to how long the global slowdown will be. The good thing about this period is that China is opening up. The zero COVID policy has ended, at least. So again, um, we expect trading activities, at least with China, to pick up um, in the next few months to come. So in this region, um, there's going to be more activities in trade. I was struck by Malaysia's growth in particular because I think people are used to seeing eye-popping numbers for Vietnam in recent years and Philippines and Indonesia as, as you know developing countries with pretty big resource endowments make sense. Malaysia is the second richest country in the region. And for a country that's about to graduate into higher income status, 4.5% is pretty good. I mean, the U.S. would kill for 4.5% 
growth year over year. We compare that to the next most developed country in Southeast Asia, Thailand. Growth has been pretty anemic. I mean, Thailand was under 4% last year. It's barely going to be that this year. What makes Malaysia so relatively resilient, especially for a country that's already pretty highly developed? I think, well, about to graduate. I think that's the key word. But I'll circle back to that. Um, but I think as an FDI destination country, we still have our attractiveness. We are fairly stable in terms of politics and in terms of policy and economics. Well, now, for now, uh, yes, stability is key. We do have our workforce um, able to support foreign direct investors in terms of skills to a certain extent, as well as language. At least this is what we get from our um, businesses, our business partners on the ground. But there are structural issues. The issues go back to, again, the need to produce higher value-added products if we're going to reach that high-income status, if that is the objective, then we need to shift our capacity to go up the ladder to also have more um, skilled workers in our mix um, instead of being relying on unskilled workers or medium-skilled workers in our industry. So it goes back to the industry. It goes back to how ready the industry is to automate and also digitize. The government has been quite generous in terms of allocation, but unfortunately, we do not have an assessment of those programs and those funding, um, for example. But we do know that MSMEs do miss out on these allocations, especially when the investments need to come up uh, need for them to come up up front. We do see that MSMEs would lose out in terms of getting those grants. Uh, Not all the time, but uh, some of the time. So there's macroeconomic uh, numbers, but there's also microeconomic challenges on the ground, and that's labor, talent, um, capacity, know-how, and also... um, Technology transfer, if we're able to absorb uh, that in a timely manner so that we don't continue to um, depend on our FDIs. And yeah. Just to break into the conversation real quick for those listeners who might be wondering why it sounds like a spaceship's landing outside. What is outside that window that's making so much noise? It's the, it's the um, it's light rail transfer. Oh, the train. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I, I, I couldn't hear that because maybe I'm so used to it. <laughs> well, there you go, uh, folks. As evidence that Lena and I really are uh, recording on the roads. <laughs> You're hearing the sights and sounds of Kuala Lumpur a little after your shower. Okay, so these structural issues will obviously take more than a year, two years. We're talking like 10, 15 years down the road. And I've heard a lot about this need to move out the value chain. Mm-hmm. Is that why so many countries in the region are kind of placing their bets on the digital economy? I've also heard a lot of interest in the green economy mm-hmm. as a, an emerging mm-hmm. growth area. Mm-hmm. Is this one way of sidestepping some of those structural problems or is it just another way to diversify the risk, so to speak? I think there's a lot of appetite now for the phone IR. IR being industrial. Yes. 
So there's a lot of appetite for green investments as well. If you look at, for example, the ESG um, initiatives, and this is from the business side, businesses who trade or who do um, business with um, much more developed uh, countries and partners in the EU and also in the US, they are open to being certified. But I feel that this can also be a cause or a factor for inequality or unequal access to market, um, especially if you think about the MSMEs. The MSMEs would not necessarily have those resources, um, hence will not be able to tap into the supply chain, maybe uh, within the region or beyond the region. Um, so in a way, it's good that there's certification for uh, green investments and for businesses to be aligned with the SDGs, for example. But I do feel that um, the MSMEs would lose out because they're not capable of tapping into those resources. And the MSMEs, are you incorrect me if I'm wrong, but they make up over 90%, I'm saying 96% or 98% of all businesses in the region. Exactly. I mean, Malaysia knows that MSMEs are very important to the economy. ASEAN countries, they know this. But again, I think the work to empower MSMEs need to continue. And for now, it's quite scattered between different countries in the region. On the flight over, I spent, at least the part I wasn't um, watching, terrible DC movie with The Rock, I was... Uh, <laughs> that is quite terrible. It is quite terrible. I was uh, editing a report that, that our team at CLS is, is putting out on um, the green energy transition in the region. And I don't want to preview that too much because I'm sure we'll take it up on a future episode. But one of the things that, that is covering the report a bit is now the issue of constrained fiscal space and debt amid all the lending or all the borrowing that countries in the region had to do. During COVID, I don't know that that's as big a problem here in Malaysia or Thailand, but I imagine for Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, looking at the internal and external pressures to put billions and billions and billions of dollars annually into energy transitions, the government space to do that is far smaller today than it was before the pandemic. How do you how do you view the role of debt around the region? So this is a tricky time to do this balancing act because when the economy is slowing down, um, what governments should do is to actually stimulate the economy. And this is through borrowing from countries like Malaysia, and we're doing that if you do see it from the budget that was recently announced. Um, There will be borrowings, but I think this government, at least it has like a medium-term plan on how to narrow down the deficit in the next five years to come. But going back to, in times of crisis, usually the government would borrow so that it can stimulate the economy through projects, infrastructure projects, where it should be creating jobs on the ground. But... This is where, again, BRI might be tricky because we have seen that in certain cases um, in Malaysia as well as in the region um, that the trickle-down effect 
um, doesn't go back to the people on the ground. Employment is very much restricted to Chinese companies, for example. Um, so that can also debunk the economic theory of um, having more projects um, to stimulate employment during crisis. Let me pick up on your mention of the BRI data. There has been a lot of external pressures uh, related to the BRI, mainly criticisms about the BRI. What's your assessment? You just mentioned that there hasn't been a very obvious trickle-down effect in terms of underground employment. Where do countries stand now with regards to these huge infrastructural projects that go under the heading of the BRI in the region, beyond just employment? Yeah. So um, at Ideas, we've looked at, I think, four different countries. And in Malaysia, we showcase four different case studies. So if you go to our website, BRI Monitors, you can see some case studies there and the indicator of transparency and others as well. What the Chinese government is offering is a more affordable package in terms of monetary, affordable package of loan, which is not um, offered by other counterparts at the present moment. Um, of course, you had um, JICA before you had COICA before you had different ODAs from the US and also ODAs from the UK. But those are, are, are no longer available within the region. So as you know, countries in ASEAN were trying to develop, we do need a critical infrastructure to grow, but I think it goes back to the cost. If interest rates were relatively lower, but what would be the non-monetary cost of being locked in an agreement where there's not necessarily transparency um, in negotiations and in terms and, and conditions? So our take is mainly that, yes, we do need funding for uh, developing our infrastructure, but at the end of the day, um, standards and also the terms need to be set by both China and also the recipient country. So this has been uh, talked about in previous roundtables with Chinese think tanks as well, and they do need, they do see the need to improve on communication and on PR. But I think at the end of the day, we as the recipient, we should also be very aware of our standard and of what our capabilities and limitations are in terms of accepting such a long-term project. And this may not just be with China, but it, could, it should be with any other country who's offering that package. All right, let's have to be done. Let's talk about IPEF. <laughs> well, first, let, let's frame this kind of all three of the, the um, alphabet soups in the region that, that matter, right? So we have RCEP or RCEP, CPTPP, and IPEF. I guess Malaysia is an interesting case study of how countries might do each of these because Malaysia ratified, finally ratified RCEP last spring and then finally ratified CPTPP at the end of last year, becoming the ninth out of the 11 countries in, in CPTPP to ratify. And that was part of the IPEF. Uh, all four of the IPEF pillars and the next round of IPEF negotiations is next week in Bali. Sorry, well, so <laughs> second round of negotiations will be in Bali next week. Uh, and I don't know that anybody expects like huge, huge breakthroughs, but as, you know, sitting here in a, in a capital that has kind of embraced all three of these, how do you rack and stack what the role of a 
RCEP versus CPTPP versus potentially IPEF is. What are the benefits from a regional perspective of, of each of these? And we don't have to talk about the shortfalls of IPEF because you Alina know, <laughs> and I do it every two weeks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, it's good to know that I don't have to comment that. But, but I think, um, I mean, again, for the region, I think it's good to have different partnerships, different networks with different countries. Of course, we were hoping that uh, the U.S. would be a part of CBTP down the line, but with the absence of the U.S. in any free trade agreements um, with ASEAN, of course, IPEF has a value there. But um, yeah, I am also looking forward to seeing what um, what the negotiations will result in because for the TPP at least it took us at least nine years to conclude that sort of commitment. But I don't know if IPATH has a different timeline. Would it need to be signed um, within? Biden's administration, or will it spill over to the next uh, administration? Um, but I think in our side of the world, we're just open to listen. But again, hopefully, it will lead to some form of a binding agreement um, in the future. Far, be, far distant future. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if anybody can reconcile them, right? Because they're very different. Our SIP is different from CBDPP, is very different from IPEF. IPEF, as we all know very well, is not your usual free trade agreement. <laughs> not, not a free trade agreement at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose the, the nice thing to say about IPEF, as always, is it'll probably involve vehicles for finance and support on, on the green economy pillar, i.e. the climate change stuff, which will be valuable. And maybe there will be some early harvest on the supply chain resiliency pillar that can be of value to, to the region. My problem always remains, well, I mean, wouldn't we have gotten both of those with or without a fancy new acronym called IPEF? The real problem with IPEF is always, and I, I imagine the the region is always going to be the weakness of pillar one, the trade pillar. So... If they walk out of Bali next week and say, hey, good news, we've got some new financing packages on climate change, everybody's still going to look and say, okay, but what about that trade pillar? Isn't that what we're all really here for? Well, okay, I'm not even expecting anything about climate, but I think we're still going to hear announcements of good news, just in general, but that's just me being cynical. Well, nobody announces bad news. <laughs> just, just don't say anything about bad news. All right, well, why don't we, we wrap this up with one final question to... So, Juita, if, if you were queen for a day and got to, you know, I think, present Malaysia's wish list or the region's wish list to the U.S. government, how do we do better? Within the political constraints of Washington, acknowledging that we're not going to be ratifying CPTPP anytime soon, what does Washington need to do to at least turn that lemon into lemonade? My question to Washington is, what are you afraid of? What is so bad about having more market access? from the U.S. perspective and as well as the Southeast Asian perspective. So I think in the future, if we can have the U.S. back to the negotiating table for the CPTP, that would be great. But yeah, we would love to also work on other focus 
that are not necessarily in CPTPP right now. There is a chapter on e-commerce, but it is not as developed as it should have been given this climate, for example. There's a lot of room for negotiations, I feel, with the U.S. And we just would like the U.S. to be back at the negotiating table. Question with a question. How profound. It was very profound. You hear that USTR? Um, <laughs> break digital economy out of pillar one. If only everybody in town was also saying that. But we're going to leave it there. Do it a thanks so much. Uh, all of you, thank you for listening. Uh, this will be, again, the first of two roadshows that Alina and I record. Uh, you won't get the next one for two weeks, though. And we'll see what kind of background noise we get in that. Spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We're asking listeners to submit questions for our special one-year anniversary episode coming up in April. So feel free to write us at searadio at csis.org if there's any topic you want Greg and Alina to cover. And do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Dylan Keene. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Radio.